a hectic Monday morning and I'm late to work. In a rush, I ordered a car service. I don't know how we avoided all the traffic, but I've already arrived at my destination downtown. Must be this high-performance car with the gold-wing doors. The brand new DeLorean, perhaps? As the door swings open, it's clear that something is different. I've done a lot of time traveling for the show, and I can tell it's not 2022 anymore. The air is hazy, but I can just make out the headlines on the ticker of the buildings in front of me. In entertainment news, Tom Cruise releases another box office smash, Mission Impossible 18. Today, Tom Brady finally announces his retirement again. The S&P hits 10,000 and reaches another all-time high. No, it's definitely not 2022 anymore. It's 2042. The headlines this morning are oddly reassuring. Sometimes the more things change, the more they stay the same. Back in 2022, it seemed like any single event could have massive, unintended consequences worldwide. That was a pivotal moment. The global economy was being redefined. The COVID pandemic and the Russia-Ukraine war had caused an extreme imbalance in the supply and demand of goods and services. We were concerned the supply chain disruptions were changing trade patterns. We wondered if energy shocks would step up or delay the transition to renewables. And as always, during uncertain times, we were looking out for the investment risks and opportunities. If only we could picture what the future holds. It turns out, maybe we can. To understand today's investment landscape, it's important to know how we got here. I'm Albert Chen, and this is The Outthinking Investor, a podcast from PGIM that untangles the past, the present-day opportunities, and the future possibilities of the financial tools we take for granted. In this episode, I'll talk with three experts on the global economy to get their take on where we're headed in this post-pandemic and war-torn era. Robert Kaplan is former president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas. Adam Tews is professor of history at Columbia University and directs the European Institute. Ellen Gasky is the G10 economist at PGM Fixed Income. Before I go back to the future, I need to ground myself in the economic issues of 2022. Today's economists and policymakers probably wish they had a way to travel to the future and see how risks might unfold, how unintended consequences might come into play, especially over the last couple of years. The rapid pace of change, the number of unknown unknowns, Rob Kaplan saw all this beginning to unfold from his post at the Dallas Fed. The COVID crisis had a dramatic effect on not only supply of goods and services around the world, but demand for goods and services. And it was a very unusual situation because we had populations throughout the world unable to go to work and having to stay home and having to quarantine. So it had a supply effect and it had a jarring negative demand effect. Globally, there was an enormous effort through fiscal as well as monetary policy to try to bolster demand and replace the lost income that people suffered because they were unable to work. 
And that global effort, fiscal and monetarily, was very effective to the point where through 2020, consumer spending around the world was actually relatively strong. In the U.S., the supply-demand mismatch was exacerbated by huge amounts of government stimulus that supported demand to an even higher level. Big shifts in supply and demand usually take time to flow through the system. This time, it seemed to happen overnight. So from a cyclical perspective, uh, the rebound from the COVID shutdowns, the unwind of policy stimulus now underway, it's all taking place at warp speed compared to other recent cycles. That's Ellen Gasky, former senior economist at the New York Fed, now lead economist at PGM's global macro research team. The emergence of high inflation over just the last year, coupled on top of that, the Russia-Ukraine war, now all pose additional risks to a soft landing. If global energy prices were to move meaningfully higher from their recent peak, I think the global economy would be at risk. For now, I think a soft landing is still possible. But if indeed we have additional shocks, particularly energy shocks, uh, I think developed market central banks, uh, including the Fed, uh, may have to pivot back towards a focus on collapsing growth. And uh, that may well short circuit their tightening cycle. It's difficult to predict where the economy is headed in the U.S. and globally. According to Adam Tews, we're still in an environment of great uncertainty. It's been a while since we have been in such a state of flux and uncertainty as we currently are, not just with regard to the U.S. economy, but the global economy. You know, we are, after all, still recovering from the COVID shock. All of the balance sheet numbers, consumption levels, housing starts, everything are completely out of whack. We're not in the 2019 normality at this point. And so calling this, making clear predictions, I think, is quite difficult. I don't think we can rule out the possibility that the Fed will, in fact, also, you know, they may they may pull off a, a soft landing. It is it's conceivable that that, that too is a, is a possibility. So I think there's a very broad bandwidth of, of possibilities at this point. Many of the developed markets are teetering. Some may be on the brink of stagnation, others stagflation. Is there a significant risk of contagion out to the emerging markets? I think there's quite serious risk to the emerging markets right now. The stagflation that would matter most for them, arguably, is in fact in China, which is the hub of global trade as far as most of the emerging markets are concerned. Latin America, for instance, trades much more significant volumes now with China than it does with North America. Um, the same is true of emerging Asia. And as far as Africa is concerned, the more frontier, low-income countries, again, Chinese investment has been the big driver. China's demand is the dominant force in global commodity markets. The spillover effect from the US to emerging markets runs largely by way of interest rates and the dollar. And so it really depends on how you see those moving. The, the higher interest rates are a really painful pressure on um, emerging markets, no doubt, um, because they have currency mismatches, they have considerable liabilities in dollars, and that higher interest rate will hurt. It will depend a little bit, though, on what their debt maturity structure is, whether or not they're facing repayment you know, pressures. If you add together the um, commodity market shock, the 
dollar pressure and the higher American interest rates for a select group of emerging market economies, by no means all of them, but those particularly which are heavily dependent on food and energy imports and have large dollar denominated debts, this really is a tough spot for them. And overall, you know, the emerging markets have really been suffering since 2014. The, 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 the damage didn't start now, the pressure didn't start now. It's It's been a long-term battle for them. And I think this year could turn out to be a very painful one. Europe is also in a sticky situation. In Europe, they are now increasingly concerned about uh, potential renewed fragmentation risks. There, the ECB is devising backup plans to be at the ready in case it is needed, intervention is needed uh, to remedy potential blowout in spreads of, of some of the member countries. Fragmentation risks has emerged as, as a new concern. What is fragmentation risk and why are central bankers concerned about it? The 19 countries that make up the Eurozone each have their own set of economic issues and fiscal policies. But because they share a common currency, economic stress within one country can impact the whole Eurozone and how the ECB develops and carries out monetary policy. Of course, That's not the only potential unintended consequence of these massive monetary policy changes around the world. Central banks risk that so controlling the market that they become the market. Uh, The Fed had that concern during the COVID crisis. It entered the corporate bond market only gingerly, wanting to improve liquidity conditions, but not becoming the market. Going forward, the Fed has that concern in terms of money markets. Again, wanting to help encourage market liquidity, but not becoming the market. And while markets remain edgy with the uncertainty around interest rate hikes, there's also an upside to higher real rates. Take 10-year Treasury yields. Much of the rise in yields is coming from real interest rates. And that will have a longer impact on asset prices. For decades now, up until the last year, we haven't seen bouts of significant consumer price inflation. Instead, what we've seen is a rolling series of asset bubbles that then subsequently burst. Lower real yields tend to push asset prices higher and do risk encouraging bubble-like activity, I think. Higher real rates, I think, lessen the likelihood we'll see that going forward. Should we expect a new normal for interest rates? A higher for longer environment? Not so fast. Many of the structural factors that drove low rates are still here. Like demographics and how our aging population will likely continue driving high savings rates. Demographics play a huge role in the economy. Rob Kaplan sees demographics as one of the top five drivers of economic growth. Population growth is decelerating in some countries, actually decreasing in others. Japan and Germany are two good examples of economies where the population and the labor force growth is is actually negative again, because of aging, and they're not as receptive to immigration in those countries. In the United States, our population, for example, is growing, but it's growing at a decelerating rate. And China 
has got a very significant issue, probably in part because of the one-child policy. China's workforce has been aging significantly, and that's not a good thing. GDP growth is made up of growth in the workforce plus growth in productivity. And workforce growth in many developed countries around the world is either decelerating and in a few cases, actually negative. Means if you're gonna grow GDP, you've gotta have productivity growth. And this is why global movements in population has been very critical. When we've had downturns, what the governments have done is done fiscal stimulus and been extremely aggressive in monetary policy. And the global balance sheets of, of global central banks have grown dramatically leading up to the financial crisis of 08, 09, and then they've taken another leap up as a result of COVID. But the implications of that are we may not be able to use debt, global central banks using easy monetary policy and growing their balance sheet, and some would say monetizing the debt, to deal with our financial issues. What's the alternative? We're going to have to find ways to grow GDP the old-fashioned way, and that means using policies that improve labor force growth. And what does that mean? It means growing populations around the world, mobility of labor, but it also means, for example, in certain locations, access to child care that make it easier for women to be in the workforce. And in addition, we need to continue to improve our education system to improve productivity, skills training, uh, and so on. The optimist in me sees reason for hope here, that business leaders and policymakers will turn crisis into opportunity. It may already be beginning. We're seeing companies and industries, they're continuing to build on what they discovered through the COVID crisis. Technology investments uh, hold open the possibility of greater productivity gains going forward, helping to drive economic growth and dampen inflation pressures over time. Many workers have enjoyed a newfound ability to work from home at least some of the time, improving their productivity and their work-life balance. That also gives companies more flexibility in hiring, which helps during tight labor markets. Another trend already underway was the emergence of companies able to reap large economies of scale, particularly if they operated on a global basis. A head start by these companies on integrating technology was one of the key catalysts for this trend. We found in many cases that large companies emerged from the COVID crisis even larger. They were better able to afford the investment budgets required and the high wage and benefit needed to attract talent. Small businesses, on the other hand, were hit pretty hard as a group. Going forward, these trends towards a focus and a dominance of large companies able to reap economies of scale, I think is likely to continue and accelerate. The disruptions during the COVID crisis sharpened the need for more business investment to build in more redundancy in supply chains, in production processes. If we do, in fact, head into recession here, this stepped up pace of investments in business equipment and software may get delayed, but not derailed, in my view. It has become a business imperative to build in redundancies to 
build in more resilience into production processes. Adding redundancies? You can almost hear the decades of management theory getting turned on its head. Globalization is not the powerful force, particularly disinflationary force than it might have been five years ago. And it's caused CEOs to rethink how they approach their access, not only to materials, but also to think about their access to labor. Uh, and again, to be a more partial to things that they have more confidence and access to and closer to home. Globally, supply chains and logistics that many companies learned to rely on got disrupted for obvious reasons. And companies started to think about the fact, boy, just-in-time inventory is great, but, but just-in-case inventory might be better. Changes in trading patterns have broad implications that go beyond the price and availability of an electric vehicle. Globalization has been blamed for killing millions of jobs, especially for low-skilled workers. It might have been, particularly if you were a low-moderate-income family, there's a good chance it might have been due to globalization. Over the last 10 or 15 years, I think it's far more likely that your job loss has been due not to globalization, but to technology-enabled disruption. And I think around the world, job losses due to technology-enabled disruption have sometimes been attributed to globalization. That's important because the solution for job losses needs to address the reason for those losses. If the reason you've lost your job is technology-enabled disruption, I mean, I think the answer is uh, skills training and helping people get retrained. If it's due to globalization, which some have asserted, then you might say we need more tariffs and other actions to level the playing field and protect local competitors. But I think the truth is, more of the job loss of low moderate income families in the last 10 or 15 years has been more likely due to technology enabled disruption. And I think if we get that diagnosis wrong, we're very likely to get the remedies wrong also. There's still a lot of speculation around deglobalization. Are some of the patterns that were established with globalization starting to reverse? I don't think what we're seeing is deglobalization. I think what we are seeing is a rearrangement, a re shift in the geometry of globalization, increasingly geopolitical overlay of globalization, the formation of new relationships. You know, if you're not going to buy your gas from Russia, then you're going to have to buy it from Qatar instead. That kind of rearrangement is ongoing. And I think the net effect of that from the point of view of the macroeconomy, and if what you're principally interested in is variables like the inflation rate, I don't think there's much doubt that that exerts some cost pressure, right? How so? Because the previous arrangement had at least one virtue, the globalization centered on China, the so-called hyper-globalization of that case. It had at least the virtue of reducing costs very considerably. And so this arrangement, which is driven to a very considerable extent by non-economic factors, almost perforce is going to raise costs. Will it raise costs significantly enough to really tilt the balance towards a more inflationary environment? I'm, I'm quite skeptical about that. Furthermore, to come back to the fundamental economics of inflation, that is a rolling, continuous process. Whereas the effect of this shift in the geometry of globalization, I think, is more pertains to the price level. So it's a, it's a one-off effect depending on each move made and the loss of efficiency in each one of those 
from each one of those rearrangements. I mean, if we were still in a world of robust productivity growth, I think I would dismiss this altogether because I think the loss of efficiency from a rearrangement in global trade and investment relationships would easily be offset by rapid productivity growth year on year. But at some point, the theoretical becomes the practical. And one particularly vulnerable area in the global economy is food scarcity. Whether you see globalization or deglobalization, stagnation or stagflation, a large portion of the world may be at risk of famine. We were already in a food crisis before the war started. Already in 2021, we'd seen a huge surge. Tens of millions of additional people had fallen into the category of extremely at risk and stressed as a result of a combination of factors having largely to do, I think, with the aftermath of the COVID shock, um, but also already then rising prices. And a major contributing factor here, other than climatic shocks and the war, is the cost of fertilizer, which has rocketed, plus the cost of diesel, which is, of course, widely used in agricultural transport, is an essential for tractors and so on. And so this is an area where we are seeing a squeeze on uh, a sector which is not large, globally speaking, in terms of the global economy, but for hundreds of millions of vulnerable people on low incomes, is critical. What about the agricultural resources across the developed markets? We could free up millions of tons of of grain if we needed to. And the worry is that the institutions of global governance, whether in response to the financial pressures of 2020 or, for instance, the challenge of global vaccination, have proved themselves um, lamentably um, below par and, and really inadequate to the kind of challenges that we face. And I think there has to be a concern that with regard to the food price situation as well, a crisis which should really be avoidable could spiral into a really serious humanitarian and political problem in some of the lower income and weaker food importing countries. Of course, that also speaks to the urgent need for action on climate change. It's obviously for the future of the planet, it's critical that we make the transition from reliance on so heavily a reliance on fossil fuels to uh, more alternatives that do not produce as much greenhouse gas emissions. Here's the problem. Even in the most aggressive scenarios for how fast we can move to wind, solar, battery storage, and a whole range of other alternatives, it's going to take many more years than I think policymakers may be thinking. And in the meantime, we have a hole in, we're not producing enough oil and gas globally. We're probably at least a few years away from peak oil demand. The current energy shock is painful for everyone, consumers and businesses, but especially low-income individuals and families. And we have a ways to go until the world has made the transition to a net zero economy. It's going to take 20, 25 years, and we're going to need a healthy oil and gas industry, as well as aggressively building alternative energy businesses to take up the slack. The problem is not just the higher costs, but the risks of service disruptions, from restrictions to rolling brownouts, even sudden stops in supply. We've been seeing that a rapid shift to green energy can be very disruptive. Parts of Europe, Germany, for example, run into trouble when the weather needed for renewables uh, to operate doesn't cooperate. And prospects 
that Russia gas supplies to Europe could be curtailed or, or cut altogether. All of that has increased uh, risks for businesses and consumers in Europe, and indeed globally. Increased oil and gas costs have helped increase the attractiveness of alternatives, uh, but reliability is a key concern. One energy source that's gained interest in the midst of all of this is nuclear power. It's getting a second look in some circles, uh, particularly in light of safer reactor models that are now available. Uh, Nuclear plants now being built in Asia, in China, India, for example, could potentially give those countries an edge in terms of energy costs and reliability over time. The shift toward cleaner energy has a massive impact on our economy, and it clearly presents some opportunities for investors. As challenging as the global economy is in 2022, there are pockets of opportunity. When we look globally at investment opportunities, the global economic cycle is at a point where the macro opportunities are perhaps fairly limited given the risks the global economy is now facing. Where we do see opportunities is more at the micro level, alpha opportunities to add value. We do think there's room to look for companies that are still in a deleveraging mode, particularly investment grade, globally diversified companies, or also below investment grade companies taking steps towards an upgrade and looking for those companies that have positive free cash flow in this environment and are displaying discipline in their capital expenditures. Also looking within industries, what are the companies that are likely to emerge as the leaders going forward? Which companies can take best advantage of adopting and integrating technology into their production so that they emerge as least cost producers? Looking for those opportunities for companies that can tap into global markets and benefits from from the economies of scale that would reap. If only we had a way to tell which companies will successfully make that transition. Fortunately, my time-traveling car service is here to take me back to the future. I wonder if past performance really is indicative of futuristic returns. This job certainly has its perks. Thanks to our three experts, Ellen Gasky, Rob Kaplan, and Adam Tews for guiding us on these global economic issues. Join me, Albert Chen, for the next episode of The Outthinking Investor. Armed with this episode's insights on the global economy, next we'll look at the ultimate price being paid for the low interest rate environment and where to look for opportunities as rates are rising. You can also listen to the third episode of this season to hear former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers on rate hikes, recession fears, and stagflation. The Outthinking Investor is a podcast from PGIM. Follow, subscribe, and if you like what you hear, Go ahead and give us a review. This podcast is intended solely for professional investor use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments involve risk, including the loss of capital. PGM is not acting as your fiduciary. The contents are for informational purposes only, are based on information available when created, and are subject to change. It is not intended as investment, legal, or tax advice, and does not consider a recipient's financial objectives. This podcast includes the views and opinions of the authors and may not reflect PGM's views. PGM and its related entities may make investment decisions that are inconsistent with the views expressed herein. This podcast should not be reproduced without PGM's prior written consent. No liability is accepted for any direct, indirect, 
effect or consequential loss that may arise from any use of the information contained in or derived from this podcast. This material is not for distribution to any recipient located in any jurisdiction where such distribution is unlawful. PGIM is the global asset management business of Prudential Financial Inc., which is not affiliated in any manner with Prudential PLC, incorporated in the United Kingdom, or with Prudential Assurance Company, a subsidiary of M&G PLC, incorporated in the United Kingdom. Copyright 2022. The PGIM logo and the rock symbols are service marks of PGIM's parent and its related entities registered in many jurisdictions worldwide.